Hey everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival, and okay, admit it. When I say the word ninja, you're probably picturing a masked warrior assassinating his clueless target from the shadows with a surgical throwing star attack straight to the forehead, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. But let me give you an entirely different perspective on the legendary ninja and what you can learn from them when it comes to your own personal protection and survival plan. Check this out. If bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, would you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. The ancient ninja of feudal Japan became legendary in popular culture when a series of ninja movies hit the West. And if you're like me, because of these movies, you grew up with the idea of the ninja as impossibly tough warriors who could lie at the bottom of ponds, breathing through straws, hide in trees, and then descend to rain death on their enemies, as well as employing a variety of really cool weapons. Now, the reality of the ninja was probably a little less cinematic, but no less impressive. And the point is that the ninja were, despite the obvious combat focus of their livelihood, the ultimate preppers and survivalists. When you think about it, they were equipped to handle the unexpected. They were renowned for their ability to do so. And they were so good at hiding who they were that we still argue about their legacy of invisibility today. So if these were some of the first doomsday preppers, what can the ancient Japanese ninja teach us about survival today? Well, that's what we're here to find out. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine and executive director of the New World Patriot Alliance with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And with us today to talk about the ninja survivalist is my friend and badass real ninja, like capital R-E-A-L <laughs> ninja, Jeffrey Miller. Jeffrey, welcome back to the program, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. Glad to always, be here. I always love to have you on. Uh, it's you're been a long be, time. You're going to be my front man. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Just, just hi, I'm going to. I'm going to have type people hire me out just for introducing them on like stage and stuff like that. Listen, everyone. If you haven't, if you haven't heard any of uh, Jeffrey's stuff with us before, I mean, Jeffrey is a um, last count we have like ninth degree master. You can correct me on that if you need to. But um, in the centuries old martial art of ninjutsu. Oh. Budo, Taijutsu, and several other ancient armed and unarmed combat methods. He's the creator of the unique EDR, non-martial arts defensive training program designed for adults who are seeking kind of just enough in the way of like basic self-defense. And he's also the co-producer of the Danger Prevention Tactics video. Now, over the years, Jeffrey has expanded his tactical knowledge and experience far beyond the ancient martial traditions that he's mastered and taught. And he's worked as a liaison between Korean National Police Forces and U.S. military police, an undercover drug and black market suppression agent, self-protection and wilderness survival instructor to military police personnel, and bodyguard for a former U.S. Secretary of Defense, other foreign and U.S. dignitaries, and I'm, I'm sure his absolute toughest assignment, wait for it, guarding the bodies of several of the beautiful members of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. It's a rough, rough life being a ninja these days. But 
You can learn more about Jeffrey Miller and his training by visiting his website online at www.warrior-concepts-online.com. All right, Jeff, this is, um, this is a really cool topic that I think a lot of people are really going to get into. So I want to I kind of jump into it, but I think we kind of got to lay a foundation here first because I think most people associate the ninja like, you know, kind of like I just described, you know, like the, the, the really cool badass guys that are, <laughs> are hanging out over your door frame ready to pounce on you. But so most of us understand what the ninja were as fighters, but people naturally don't associate them as like ancient preppers. Now, I know you've spent a lot of time training, not just in martial arts, but also in like survival strategies and even active shooter defense and workplace violence and things like that. And I know you have, a, you have a course for that stuff now, but what would you say are like the main attributes of the ninja that made them survivalists that most people wouldn't know and they wouldn't associate with them? Wow. Uh, yeah, giving me some serious thoughts. So let's tear this down. Uh, so the first thing that I would say is that uh, they were extremely self-reliant. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they also had a network of allies. Okay, so let's just very quickly talk about the self-reliance, right? That, that's in all aspects of life, right? So most people believe that, and it's based on, you know, this erroneous history, but believe that uh, as so-called, you know, a counterculture to the ruling samurai class, that meant that the ninja were, were like poor farmers. And it's not true, right? They had money, they had land, they owned castles. Uh, as a matter of fact, I visit a couple of these things um, when I go to Japan uh, to, as, as part of my history or history research. Uh, but more importantly, contrary to the samurai uh, ideology where if it was good enough for my great-great-grandpappy, it, then it's good enough for me and that's what we're going to preserve, the ninja families were way open to new technology. So anything that could make things better or easier um, was a part of that. Uh, so there's that. But at the same time, we have to remember that sometimes survival is based on just being in a group or, or having allies. So a big part of, of ninjutsu is in having what we would call a ninja network. That's a group of people who have their own skill set or knowledge base or whatever that you can call on whenever you need that to allow you to accomplish things that, that you, either you don't know so much about or you don't have the time to, to delve into those kind of things. So it's kind of like walking, and I, I'm going to borrow a pun or a, a little thing here. It's like walking that sword's edge, right? On one side, self-reliant where... You can take care of yourself, and I think most preppers can, can relate to that. But at the same time, having a network of, of folks that you could call on should you need, you know, help in whatever way. Yeah. And then, uh, let's see, that's one. So uh, next one uh, is in uh, th this whole uh, phrase, and, and our grandmaster uses this all the time, and it's to keep going no matter what, right? The nin, the, the kanji, the Japanese-Chinese kanji used to write this word nin of ninja Ja just means person. Nin means perseverance or to endure, right? So ninjas, by default, is about surviving in the face of greater odds, right? And then the third thing is in having more options than your opponent, right? Being more like, a, I don't know, for the older folks, right? Being more like a MacGyver or a James Bond. What I mean by that is in, like, being a creative thinker and a problem solver and, and figuring out how to do more with less because the, the things that we're prepping for really are about, you know, not having the normal things, right? So mm. how do you do the same amount or more with less, right? So they, and, and I'll talk about more options and stuff later, but uh, it really is about being able to, to 
you know, adapt to the given situation. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, something you and I have talked about before, too, is in their ability to, and their actually their kind of their need to, like if they were on a mission somewhere, and, you know, it wasn't necessarily like the building next door, like, like take out the, you know, take out the fish, the, the fish keeper and the butcher next door for this assignment or whatever. It was oftentimes like far distances. They had to travel a long ways. They had to do it without being noticed. They had to do it secretively. But along the way, it's not like right. there were grocery stores just to pop into and everything. I mean, like they were like some of the first wilderness survival. Well, I mean, some of the first. I mean, obviously, we could go back to caveman days, obviously, right? right? But nonetheless, they had to right. be able to kind of, you know, live off the land or, or do these different things when it came to wilderness survival. So, so let's jump in there first, because I know a lot of people, a lot of our listeners are really into like, how do we, how do we survive in the woods on minimal amount of resources and things like that? So what are some things that we can learn about wilderness survival per se from the, the teachings or the, um, some of the tricks that the ninja had for being able to do that effectively? Yeah, that, that's that's a good point that you brought up because um, I've visited um, some of the quote-unquote homelands uh, where the ninja families lived way back in the day, and these are still populated places today. But I mean, I'm I'm on a train on the side of a mountain where if you look out the train window, you don't see the ground below you. The, the area is cut out just enough for the train tracks, right? So these are very very steep mountains, very steep ravines. When they moved away and got away from things, they literally got away from things, right? Mm. So, uh, you know, life itself was was fairly uh, was fairly tough. But uh, the first thing that I would I would start with is, is is in understanding the situation that you're prepping or training for, right? They did a lot of prep work, and uh, you know they did information gathering and things like that. So if it was a target, they were obviously getting a lot of information about that person. But at the same time. If we even if we just look at that from from today's perspective, right? What type of situation are you prepping for? And we typically divide uh, a, a survival situation into three subcategories. So there, we we could call them one paramilitary, okay, where you are on an operative kind of thing, right? Then there's the emergency survival kind of thing where you, you're trapped. I mean, you were in a plane crash or whatever, and you're you're just trying to stay alive. And then there's this other general kind of topic. So in a general topic, let's say we go out and we're going to do some training. We're going to do, uh, let's say, fire building, right? Mm -hmm. Does it matter what kind of fire structure or fire lighting method we use? No, we're, we're going out and we're practicing, right? As long as we end up with one, we're good. And and we're relatively safe, right? When we, you know, everybody knows where we are. We're in a big group and, and all that. So, you know, there's no stress and, and you have this. Same thing with fire building. If I'm in a paramilitary situation, then there's major considerations in, just in two areas, for, for example, right? During daylight, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be okay with the light of a fire, but I don't want any smoke, okay? Because that's going to give away my, or my, my, uh, uh, my position. If, I'm, uh, if it's at nighttime, then I can have smoke, but I want as little light as possible from that fire. So again, because of drawing attention to my, to my position, if I'm in an emergency survival situation, it's going to be exactly the opposite. I want as much light by night, as much smoke by day as possible. So again, it's, it's an understanding what the end game is and not just, you know, I can build a fire. Great. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Are you in a are you in a, a geographical area where it's been raining for a while and your fuel is on short supply? So, you know, the the structure that you use should be able to allow you to start with a given, even if it's a small fire, but the fire itself it has to stay lit. So there's that. But at the same time, can you build a structure or do something that will by default allow the fire itself to dry its own fuel source as it burns. Or if you have relatively, you know, little uh, fuel supply, there's there's types of fuel structures or fire building structures for that. Uh, so just little considerations and, and doing more prepping. Uh, again, this goes back to having the more options principle, but having more than one way to do everything like the fire building, more than one fire structure, uh, more than one way to light a fire. Right. So uh, my students learn five different ways to light a fire and nine different uh, structures because each one, you know, I'm going to want one structure for signaling, one for cooking, one to conserve fuel, just different things. Right. Uh, in in Nijitsu, uh again, we're, we're looking to prepare for the worst so that everything else is easier by default. Right. So kind of approach it from that direction. But there's this principle that we have. In English, it kind of translates to three and one, one and one, or three and one, one and three. And what that means is that you're you're trying to have three ways to do any given thing, whether it's a, a joint dislocation, uh, a forward throw, uh, whatever, right? With, uh, lighting a fire, that kind of thing. And uh, I had a teacher one time uh, kind of break things down by the numbers, and uh, he said, you know, lots of people use the term. Uh, they would equate this to zero, right? I didn't have any options. I didn't have any choices. Well, if you don't have any choices, you're dead, right? Um, if you only have one choice, then you're a slave. If you have two choices, you have a dilemma, right? It's only when you have three or more options or choices in any given situation do you actually have what most of us are searching for anyway, which is the freedom to take the best route, right? Mm. So anyway, so there's that, right? And then the last thing that I would say is that remembering that the universal rule of survival is energy conservation, right? We want to use less energy doing anything, collecting water, building a fire, whatever, than you are taking in as food, water, whatever, right? This goes the same for wars, finances, water collection, shelter building, whatever it is, right? If you're expending more resources than you are taking in, you will lose. And in certain cases, Losing means dying. Hmm. Yeah, so, anyway. all good, all good points. And that, and that, um, that, that rule of three there even goes beyond what a lot of survivalists think of today, which is you know like two is one and one is none. Like you should always have at least you know one backup. So it's interesting that they kind of had that concept just kind of built in. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right, we've been talking with Jeffrey Miller of warrior-concepts-online.com about the ancient ninja and what teachings they have to offer the modern-day survivalists. Now, we've got a lot more coming up, including, of course, ninja weapons, going invisible, and, yes, even escape and evasion tactics. But first, check out this special message. In any disaster, crisis, or attack, your life and the life of those you love could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, 
or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them. And how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place. Or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie. But you know that no one can protect your family better than you can. If you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Jeffrey Miller of warrior-concepts-online.com about different teachings that we can come away with from a survival perspective from the teachings and the trainings of the ancient ninja. Now, we've got a lot more coming up. And let's go ahead and get into probably one of the most common questions that we get about this sort of thing, which is, which is weapons. And everyone thinks of martial arts and weapons like ninja stars and swords when the ninja comes up. But, but Jeffrey, what, what can the ninja teach us about surviving with weapons in the modern age, like in a, in a, like a survival scenario, whether it is, you know, a breakdown in civil order, like urban survival type scenario or whatever it might be? How do we, what can we take away from the weapons training that, that ninja have? Well, um, how about the first one being don't have a favorite, right? Everything is and can be a weapon. Uh, quick story. One of my guys uh, was talking to uh, his brother. His brother was watching some of these survival prepper TV shows and uh, called up uh, my, my student and said, uh, you know, I'm looking at uh, – firearms, you know, this clock or this thing over here or whatever, uh, which one do you think would be best if we had this, you know, civil breakdown and everything? What kind of weapon should I get? And my student said, uh, an air rifle. And he said, wait a minute. Okay. No, I'm being serious. And he said, I am being serious. I want you to think about this. One, a regular firearm depends on very specific types of ammunition. You will run out of ammunition. Two, the sound of a firearm is very distinctive. You will either deter people or if people need ammunition and or uh, firearms or, you know, they're, they're assuming that somebody that has one is protecting something, right? They're going to be drawn to that sound. And three, if you're in an urban breakdown area and let's say the food supply is scarce, your primary food supplier is going to be squirrels, rodents, which are squirrels anyway, or squirrels or rodents anyway, and small birds. So be careful what kind of, you know, firearm you choose because you could end up with nothing at all, even though you killed the thing, right? So uh, we're looking at thinking about considerations outside of, you know, major stopping power or whatever, right? But the whole idea from a ninja standpoint is everything is and can be a weapon. So we explore things way beyond that. And with the ninja's perspective on, let's say the sword, right? The ninja sword was a utilitarian tool and it did, the ninja didn't wrap the same kind of 
cultural or familial uh, special uh, specialness around uh, the sword like the samurai did, right? To the samurai's family, that sword was was a it was a symbol of the family's power and status and all that, and you know it it, it was um it, it had its own spirit, right? Uh, the ninjas, all the ninjas' weapons, we even tend to not call them weapons. They're called tools, okay? And that's the, that's the next thing, right? Weapons are tools. They're not special things in and of themselves. They allow you to accomplish a task much easier, but as my teachers always said, no weapon or tool can ever make up for lousy technique, okay? So I know that there's lots of preppers that, you know, they, they have their to-go kits, and, you know, we have, we have all that stuff, right? But uh, these water purification tubes that have filters and all that, depending on how long you're out there, how many filters can you, can you keep with you accounting for inclement weather, accounting for uh, the weather or weatherization of the plastic that, that that stuff is in accounting for animals coming in and foraging or, you know, a fight breaking out among the group that you're in because somebody who has less experience than you or is less prepped, but he's freaking out in the situation decides he's taken over. So, Stuff gets damaged, right? You accidentally step on the thing, and now it doesn't work, right? So, you know, if you can't collect water without it, if you can't purify it without it, then you're like a cripple with a crutch with the thing. So, anyway, just it's a ninja perspective, you asked, right? <laughs> and, and, again, don't be overly reliant on a weapon or a tool. Be the weapon or be able to fashion a tool, Okay, uh, the ninja's unarmed defense methods were developed were, were, were based on weapon work. Like way back in the day, the first weapon somebody picked up or the first thing they learned combat-wise was something really long, like a halberd or a spear. And the idea was to kill somebody at a distance. And then as somebody aged and survived warfare and all that, it was actually the middle-aged guys that used the sword because they didn't have the same kind of speed and and you know, agility and all that. It's the young guys. So the bad guy was going to get closer. So here's this sword. Old guys protecting the home front, they may have had a short sword or a, or a knife or whatever, but typically they were unarmed. But by that point in their life, they understood weapons and things like that so much and, and how the body was instrumental in, in applying the weapon that they were the weapon, right? Yeah. So uh, nothing was different, right? So, you know, it's, 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 it's funny because in the West, you know, all the ninja movies and, all, and everything that, that we've been exposed to shows the ninjas, it's gorilla fighter, everything's wrapped around the weapons and, and all that kind of stuff. And in the East, in Japan, where this stuff came from, um, no, it's more around the spiritual, personal development, almost the mystical aspects of how to get people to do things that, uh, that allow you to accomplish your goal, but they don't even know that you were involved. Right, so very, very different, right? And the truth is somewhere in between both of them. But the reality is that uh, we wouldn't have, like, jacked up, like, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando coming off the dinghy and having all that stuff on him running around. You, you can't be quiet with all that stuff hanging off of you. You can't move quickly with all that stuff hanging off of you. And on top of that, that just shows an over-reliance on weapons. Maybe on a battlefield, but not in, not in everyday, you know, uh, situations. Yeah. Well, here's what here's what I took from that really uh, quickly. The notes I wrote down for it, I think, are really are, are three things that I think people can really take from it. Number one, like not have a reliance on the weapons, but be a weapon. And, you know, we know the ninja as 
hand-to-hand combat warriors. Like that was, if you have nothing else, at least you have your body. And a lot of people kind of maybe get an over-reliance, maybe on firearms and things like that, and think that, well, I don't really need to know hand-to-hand because I have my Glock or whatever it is. And so I would say, number one, be the weapon. Number two, what I took from you was that, like, plan the right tool. We won't even call it a weapon, but plan the right tool for the scenario that you're in. For example, if it is a scenario post-breakdown and a firearm is going to attract undue attention, an air rifle may be the thing that you need so that you can stay alive, feed yourself, and, you know, did you really prepare for that? And then the third thing was, like, if you have nothing else and you have you, you are the weapon, but to at least get a weapon, like, since everything is a weapon, like, just look around you right, right now and find, if you had to just choose something right this second, what's the closest, best weapon that you could get, and then you know, as you come across something else that's a better weapon, upgrade it from there. It's almost like the um, like the uh, uh, video game kind of thing, right? Like when you first start out a video game, like Resident Evil or some zombie thing or something like that, it's like you start off and they hand you like a brick. You know, it's like, oh, thanks. You know, where's my grenade launcher when I want it against the horde of zombies? But they start you right. off like, here's a brick, and then then you find some string and some lighter fluid, and all of a sudden it's like a flaming brick grenade or whatever it is, but the the point is like get something you can use to increase your your abilities first and then upgrade it from there or depending upon the scenario let's go ahead and, so, and jump into yeah. like the concept of like invisibility i mean it's hard not to laugh i think when we're talking about it because people people it's it's always like a literal translation but when we're talking about when we get across <laughs> the survivalists we are like we're always trying to get across to preppers if you will the need to like lay low during times of crisis, because obviously when everybody around you is desperate, panicked, afraid, there's, there's not, not good resources. And we've seen over and over again, like the wolves of our society become predatory, right? Like they look to take advantage oh, absolutely. of people's, you know, uh, uh, misfortune and stuff. And so obviously the ninja were considered masters of blending in with their environment. So what like camouflage tactics, talking specifically about like blending in, from a physical standpoint, like like how we how we look or whatever, what can we take away from their training that would be helpful for us to avoid being targeted during times of like civil unrest or being surrounded by desperate citizens? Yeah, and see, this isn't going to sound like normal camouflage, <laughs> but it is, right? Because the the key principle for the ninja is to be invisible in the eyes of an enemy, right? And that doesn't mean that you disappear in a puff of smoke. As a matter of fact, all that stuff in the movies, they didn't have, you know, detonators that would work that way, right? They barely had fuses. So but what we're looking about looking at is being able to present yourself in a way where you're not seen as a threat. Okay. But at the same time, right, we don't want to be seen as the as the local convenience store when the local convenience store runs out of food. All right. So here's one of the biggest things I see as a problem in the prepper world when it comes to camouflage. And that's not about laying low during times of unrest. For a ninja, laying low is an everyday thing. Camouflage and, and invisibility is an everyday thing. So just off the top of my head, what I would say is, one, don't share your plans. Okay? Don't tell people you have a stockpile of food and provisions. Because when the local store runs out of things, you will become the local store, 
right? And I know you've got your guns and all that kind of stuff, but you can't miss often enough to win. And how many of them are going to be coming to your house? How much do you really have, right? How long does it take to reload? Will your weapon jam? You know, those kind of things, right? I mean, do you really want to be the focal point, right? Uh, and also don't brag about how deadly you are or what you'll do to anyone who threatens you. Remember that eventually, again, you'll run out of bullets, allies, or blood. So, again, a lot of this starts long before, and, and this is a big thing. One of the first lessons I learned as a white belt in Ninjutsu, my teacher looked at me and said, you need to learn to control the opponent before he's ever realized he lost control. So this goes the same with, uh, with stealth and, and this kind of thing. You need to be invisible long before you need to be invisible. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, I would equate it to if I, the ninja aren't like going to be out in their in their front yard for all their neighbors to see in their black pajamas, like practicing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like scaling a wall and stuff like that. Like, don't don't and, bother me. I'm just uh, you know, I'm just training. You know, I'm just practicing my ninja skills over here. Likewise, just training to be what you think of ninja, right? We're right. assassins, and yeah, just don't worry about me, right? But right. while I'm doing things that will make you worry about me, right? And, and, and the last thing a ninja would do was wear that, literally, it's a Kabuki theater uh, outfit. It was worn by Kabuki theater stagehands because they didn't drop a curtain to change scenes. So people were just trained early on in Japanese culture to ignore the guys dressed that way as they were moving things around because they were just part of the background. So when they brought ninja into theatrical work, they dressed him in stagehand uniforms or outfits when they were supposed to be seen as invisible. So wow. anybody that's wearing these things today is absolutely not a ninja because ninja wore what everybody else wore and or you wore things that because of the color chosen blends in much better at night. Uh, you learn to carry yourself a certain way. You learn, you learn to feign injuries. Here's, here's an example from our disguise and impersonation skills that I used in real life. Uh, about nine years ago, I was in an accident, uh, hit a patch of ice, went off a roadway. It was one of these mountain roadways that, um, you know, if you've ever looked down over one of these things and thought, if I ever went over one of those, that would really suck. Let me tell you how badly it sucks. So, but I had a pre-plan long before that. So I get out, I climb up, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, no vehicles, anything like that, right? Well, there's this pickup that's coming in my direction, and I start to flag this guy down, and I have a flash in my head of, like, first blood, you know, from that Stallone movie way back, right? But I could actually hear the vehicles start to accelerate. They weren't going to slow down. So very quickly, I just shifted my weight and dropped my hip a little bit and then started walking like I had a messed up knee and hip. And I dropped my head and moved my shoulders to look like an injured person. Mm. And they slowed down and they came to a stop and I asked for help and they looked really, you know, bothered, you know, because they had a pickup. Right. And I said, look, it was, this was February. Right? It was freezing snow everywhere and stuff. I said, look, man, I'll sit in the back with a dead deer. I just need to get back to that hunting cabin that I passed a ways back. I need to make a phone call. Right. And yeah. That the fact that I offered to do that, that put them more at ease and all that, you know, could I have still been a serial killer? Sure. But I knew in that instant that, you know, I'm out here in the middle of freaking nowhere, right? Um, can I survive? Yeah, but I prefer not to. And here's a vehicle. Here's help now. What can I do to, to, uh, to appeal 
to the typical nice person, right? Yeah. We all want to help somebody who's in dire need of help. So I went from somebody who was maybe a hitchhiker looking for a ride to somebody that needs medical attention. Yeah. Yeah. So like in so, like in the case of, you know, we see a lot of riots these days. People get desperate nowadays. Like the, the thing to do is to get together, all storm around City Hall and, you know, we've got police lines yeah. and everything else. And so it's it's kind of like, you know, you become the master of disguises. You put on the camouflage that you need for the moment. If you're caught in one of those things, I mean, if you are like we just had the, um, you know, the KKK rallies and stuff like that in the news and everything. So if you were right. somehow right. just surprised by all of that, somehow you're with your family or whatever, and you're on you're on the side where you just have to be surprised on the side where the KKK is. Like you might have to like slip into the persona of yeah those damn you know Jews whatever you know it's like just to be able to not I, I get yourself out right I might absolutely and, and people people naturally pick a persona right we we decide who we are and the ninja are very malleable that doesn't mean that we have we have uh, I would say the lawyers morals or ethics or whatever where you know, you'll represent somebody just because they're paying you kind of thing. And I'm not saying they have low morals. It's just that's the way they come across. Right. Mm -hmm. But we have very strong ones. But at the same time, you know, uh, like in my everyday life, I tend to not throw out a whole lot of, you know, uh, four letter words and, and things like that. I just typically don't. Right. But if I were in South Philly and being surrounded by a couple of guys, you can bet your butt that I'm going to start using a couple of F-bombs and all that, because if I say, please leave me alone. I don't want any trouble. I might as well paint target on my forehead mm. because in that culture, I'm a victim. But if I start, if I step up and say, you know, get the F out of my face, you know, I don't want any trouble, you know, just back off that kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm more likely to get respect. Not that something won't happen, but I'm more likely to get respect and that speaks their listen. Yeah, but if my I do that, in you know a local church around here seeing that I'm, it's about producing results in the in the moment that you're in and in the environment that you're in yeah. and making sure that you're very clear about that stepping into that you know into that rally i may need to step into that because i want to get to the other side of it and there's no other way to cross the street so when i'm in it i don't want these guys pushing and shoving me around and creating a problem from inside i, I don't want to look like the other guys either even if I'm the most confident guy in the world and I, I know where I'm going, I just want to cross the street. I also don't want to look that way either because the police are hyped. Both sides are hyped. I could be mistaken for somebody on either side. So I need to understand and assess the situation. Do I need to look like somebody who's scared and panicking and just trying to get out of that, that situation so that I'm communicating to everybody that I'm not, I'm not, not your group. I'm not in your group, but at the same time, I, I'm, I'm not playing. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm just uh, I, I want to get out of here. So I don't typically play the victim very often, but I'm really good at playing a victim. Should I need should that be the thing? Yeah, because that I need to communicate with everybody around in a way. And, and again, this goes back to being invisible in the eyes of the opponent. Who's the opponent? Okay. What will push their buttons or what will make them ignore you? Yeah. Okay? So. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to give him that Chuck Norris look just before he kicks people in the face. The guy's got a gun on him and all that. 
for most people, you look like you can handle yourself and about to go for the gun. All they have to do is twitch a finger. Right. So how about if we just not do that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And as I always teach people, gun disarms are 90 percent psychological and only 10 percent technique anyway. So, uh, you know, it's very, very different. Yeah, yeah. We, we, that sounds like a deep dive. We don't have time for right now. I'd love to. I would love to know <laughs> yeah, exactly no, what no, that no. is. But it, let's. Uh, so let's kind of go beyond like the physical or the persona camouflage now. And the last question I have for you is really kind of about more like escape and evasion movement and things like that. I mean, the ninja were they sometimes they had to get to whatever their mission was, their assignment or whatever it was, and had to avoid detection along the way. Obviously, camouflaging themselves or blending in with their environment is part of that, but are there any strategies that you can offer us for how to evade like detection or um, how to move from one location to another, even in urban environments outside of camouflage that would sure. allow us to mask our movement? Yeah, uh, uh, let me just, uh, this will be kind of a bleed over, right? Uh, which is making stealth your normal way of moving through the world. Train to be the quietest person in the room. That way, if blending in involves noise, it's actually easier for a quiet person to be noisy than it is for a noisy person to be quiet, right? So if I just, if I don't slide chairs out from under a table and nobody pays attention to it because it's normal sound. Right. But if I don't do that, then I don't risk dragging something in those moments when I want to be quiet. Same thing with picking up a glass, putting down a book, anything like that, and learning how to do that so that sound isn't being created. Right. Um, the other one is, is, and part of this is being uh, practicing to be more aware of like uh, natural sounds and using natural sounds and movement as cover for your own movement. Uh, one of the things that catches students all the time is we'll go out. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have a, a big ninja camp coming up here in the fall. And so we do a, a stealth exercise. And they have, you know, so much time to get from point A to point B. Some of it's in the open. Some of it's not. And, um, you know, they spend all this time trying to use all their really cool stealth movement strategies and techniques to get across this space because they don't want to, you know, step on a twig and make it snap or, you know, whatever. But the reality is, is that if you're in the woods, if you just stop and listen, twigs are snapping all the time. But never, ever, ever, and these are the words of my teacher in a stealth exercise way back. He said, never, ever, ever will you hear a twig do this. Shit. <laughs> you're not going to hear this thing snap and then this person go, mm. you're not going to hear those kind of things, right? They just normally occur. So if it occurs, just stop. Understand that as bipeds, we have a certain rhythm when we walk. So for stealth, you need to break that up, right? If a, we live in the modern century, you know, the modern century, we don't live in 13th century Japan. So when a plane goes over or a tractor trailer goes by, no matter how quiet you were trying to be, you can run your butt off at that moment, run across noisy leaves or whatever, because no one's going to hear you. You're using that natural sound to mask you know, so at that moment, you don't need stealth movement to be quiet and not make noise. Any noise that you're going to make is going to be masked and drowned out by anything that's happening around you. So by all means, use those things, right? And again, 
this goes back to being adaptable, right? Learn to blend in, in any crowd. I, we, I understand, you know, who I prefer to present myself as, but at the same time, you know, I'm a corporate consultant. So if I'm sitting in front of a CFO or a CEO, I'm in a three-piece suit and I look very comfortable in a three-piece suit. And I sound like that consultant who's the superstar that they want to hire and expose their company to so I can fix things for them. I don't want to come in looking like some ex-cop who doesn't like wearing, quote unquote, the monkey suit to go to court. And so I don't look comfortable in this thing. And now I don't come across looking like an executive who they would like to to hire. Right. I look like, you know, I may have some knowledge, but it's a little off. Right. So, you know, this goes back to my days when I was a PI. Right. If I, if I was following somebody, they were messing around on their wife or whatever, and they took their date to, I don't know, a biker bar. Got a couple of items in the trunk. I can throw this thing on and I can walk in there. I've never, I've, I've ridden motorcycles, but I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a biker, but I can walk in there and not look out of place. Just like I can dress up in a tuxedo and go. Uh, you know, with a doctor friend to a formal gala and look like I belong there or anywhere in between. Okay. Because we have to be careful how much we decide we're only one way and we're no other way. Okay. And that may be true on the inside and from the ninja's perspective of Seishin uh, Teki, which is spiritual refinement, right? When, when they were out on missions, right, they still kept the truth of who they were and what they were all about and all that in their heart, but they may have presented, they may have had need to present themselves as somebody completely different because that's what was necessary. Right. So, you know, if you, if you act the same way all the time, then, you know, the way you act is the way you are. Right. But at the same time, you know, you can be, uh, I could, let's say I could be a very, and I am, I'm a very moderate, uh, independent kind of thing when it comes to the political spectrum. But I could sit down in any one of those, in any of these meetings, right, and look like I belong there because I want to see what they're all about. And the only way to do that is to not look like an outsider. Yeah. Right? What I need, and, and this, this being invisible in the eyes of the enemy means that somebody who's looking to hurt somebody like you can look right at you, can interact with you and all that, and, and never get an inkling that you are who they're looking for. You're not the droids they're looking for. So, so really, uh, this is this is kind of like a it's kind of an extension of the the physical camouflage. In that, if you're in an area, even if it's an unknown urban area, again, looking around to see, like, really, it's intel, right? Like, looking around to see how do people act, how do they dress, how do they, no matter what it is, like when you're walking down the street, you don't want to look like the um, I don't know. Like, you know, I'm thinking of like way, like somebody who's obviously not from around here. You want to be able to blend in. We call right. it gray man, right. you know, but manner wise, movement wise, yeah, yeah. you should be able to move anywhere you want and blend in wherever you want by, by taking on the traits of the, of your surroundings. Well, it's the, it's the mirror. Uh, it's the mirror reflection of what you would do. Let's say I'm a counterterrorist specialist or, well, I'm a self-defense expert, right? So I'm in a restaurant, right? I, I go in that restaurant. I do a safety check. I, I know where the front door is. I know where the kitchen is. I know where the bathrooms are. I know where the emergency exit is. I scan the faces. I've done that due diligence, right? So I'm, I'm handling myself, right? And if 
it's it's August, right? Where I live or where you live or in South Texas or whatever. And some guy walks in wearing a big, heavy black trench coat, combat boots, right? And that, that's just, see, I, I when I went into that place, I established what I would call a baseline. This is normal for here. Mm-hmm. And now this guy coming in, that's not normal for here, right? This is a family restaurant. It's not just a local diner where bikers might, I mean, they could get a whole blend of things, right? This is, you know family dining kind of thing not upscale but at the same time you know people are dressed casually but nice and here's this he gets my attention i'm not going to glare at him but he gets my attention right because he stands out chances are he's not a problem at all but he's atypical right yeah yeah. so i can take all those lessons that i would apply as a self-defense person looking for problems or looking for red flags and reverse engineer that and not be the red flag. Yeah. yeah and you need sure. to both sides. Both sides are exactly the same. Yeah. What cool. I'm looking for, I either have to be or not be depending on what it is that, you know, do I, am I invisible or do I stand out? Yeah. So wherever the situation dictates. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, I, yeah, absolutely. No, I really appreciate it. I know we um, we went a lot longer than what uh, we expected, but I really appreciate yeah. all the information. There's a lot of great, a lot of great um, crossover here that I think people really need to understand, and, and I, I think it'll give people a different, everyone that's listening out there, um, a different perspective on your own plans, either how you're approaching them now or other ways to think about them um, to be able to kind of round out your training more. So, listen. Uh, Jeff has Jeffrey has like a, a ton of really great resources on his website, all the way up to you know DVDs and things like that. I've always been a big fan of his work, and you can get, definitely go over check out his website over at www.warrior-concepts-online.com. And I know Jeff has put Jeff Jeff has put a lot of effort and research and training into specifically survival strategies when it comes to his training. And he has a special report that is available. In fact, what we'll do is we'll put a link to it on our show notes for the for this podcast. So go ahead and check those out. Click on over there, and you can just grab a download of Jeff's for where he talks more about these survival principles from the ninjutsu perspective. So definitely go check that out. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much. Really great information, and um, really appreciate all your time today. And I appreciate having me on. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay. All right, listen, everybody, until the next Modern Combat and Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying prepare, train, and survive. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.